A sacrifice means to give up something you value in exchange for something you value more. The most precious thing you possess without exception is life. God doesn't need or want our stuff. God wants us. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Genesis uh, 35, and we're going to continue in the life of Jacob. How many, how many of you uh, follow baseball at all, even slightly? Some of you do, some of you are not interested. Those of you that follow sports of any kind know that slumps are part of any game. In baseball, the major league record for the most at-bats without a hit was set in 2011, when a player went 37 times to the plate without a single hit. That's a lot of failure. And our spiritual walk with the Lord sometimes is subject to slumps. Sometimes we seem to be really intimate with Jesus and things are working well and Sometimes God seems so far away and our relationship with him feels as flat as a lukewarm soda with no fizz. That's where Jacob is today. 30 years before, Jacob has uh, cheated his brother Esau out of the family inheritance. And he lied to his father with the conspiracy of his mother. And his brother plans on killing him, Esau. His parents send him away. Uh, to his mother's home country, which is called Haran, which is up in Mesopotamia. It's about 550 miles north and west of where he's currently living. And Rob's going to show you a map of that soon. And on the way north to Haran, he has a meeting with God, face to face, at a place called Luz, which interestingly enough means separation, and he's going to rename that particular place Bethel, which means house of God. And at Bethel, he's sleeping and he has a vision of a ladder that stretches between heaven and earth and angels of God ascending and descending. And at Bethel, God appears directly to Jacob and reaffirms all the promises that he'd made to his father Abraham and Isaac. God promises to give Jacob the land of Canaan, many descendants, and a divine blessing for the entire world through his family. Furthermore, God says, I'm always going to be with you. I will always protect you, and I'm going to bring you back to the place where you are right now. I know you're going 550 miles away. I'm going to bring you back home to the land of Canaan. And Jacob is so overwhelmed. He says, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. He sets up a big rock as a pillar, a memorial to remember that. And he pours oil on that as a sacrifice, not motor oil, olive oil. And we uh, you know, 5.30 from, you know, Costco. And he vows that if God would protect him and provide for him and bring him back, he says, then I swear that God will be my God and I will be loyal to God and God alone. 
Now, this entire encounter happened 30 years before today's lesson. Since then, Jacob, as you recall, had spent 20 years in Haran with Uncle Laban. And in the last 20 years, he has now four wives, 11 sons, and massive flocks and herds. After 20 years serving with his uncle Laban and getting cheated by his uncle Laban, God tells Jacob, it's time to go back home to Canaan. So Jacob heads back home, and on the way back home, he meets his brother Esau. They reconcile, and there is forgiveness. Esau has given up and forgiven him, not going to try and kill him. Jacob comes into Canaan, and he immediately disobeys God. God told him, you go back to Bethel, and I have a meeting point with you there. And he doesn't quite get to Bethel. For the last 10 years, he's been doing business with the Canaanites in Shechem. Shechem is uh, in the hill country. It's about uh, 30 miles north or so, 25 miles north of uh, Bethel, where God wants him to be. And Jacob has been drifting away from God. He's been in a spiritual slump for 10 years. I don't know if you've ever been in the spiritual slump. I think they occur to us on a routine basis. I think our relationship with the Lord is like our relationship with another person. There are times it feels wonderfully intimate in your marriage and with your kids or grandkids. And there are times it's just kind of there. And there are times it just feels distant. Jacob has been distant from God for 10 years. What Jacob needs to do is he needs to break with the world because he's in Shechem with the Canaanites and he needs to recommit himself to following God alone. And he's not interested in doing any of that because he's getting rich doing business with the Shechemites. But as we found out last week, sin and compromise has consequences. And his daughter is raped by the prince of Shechem. His sons go on a rampage of brutality and murder and revenge, and they slaughter all the males in Shechem. They loot the entire city. They loot the entire countryside, and they take all the flocks and herds and gold and silver and capture all the families of the surviving women and children. Sin has consequences beyond what you can even imagine, and Jacob is now encountering that. So word spreads to the fellow Canaanite communities what Jacob has done and what his sons have done. And he really becomes afraid of retribution, and rightfully so. Because these women and children they've captured are probably relatives of some of the surviving Canaanite communities. And at this precise moment, when Jacob has encountered the devastation of sin in chapter 34, is terrified for his life, God speaks to him again and says, go to Bethel. Leave Shechem and go to Bethel. It's 20 miles south. And like Jacob, sometimes when God speaks to us, our hearing aid doesn't work very well. Have you noticed? Especially when everything in life seems to be going well. As a matter of fact, the more successful our life is, the more things seem to be going well, the less we seem to need God, and therefore the less we tend to listen to God. However, when our life begins to fall apart, our hearing aid to God goes on high, and we tend to be far more willing to listen to Him. Let's start the narrative in chapter 35, verse 1. 
Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them in the yoke which was near Shechem. Here's the principle. Returning to God requires repentance. We must walk away from sin and walk back to God. Let me repeat that. Returning to God requires repentance. We must walk away from sin and walk back to God. You know, the word repent literally means to turn around. We've had a ministry here um, downtown years ago called 180. You know, 180 degree turn is where you literally do a 180 away from sin and you turn back to God. But I put the word walk in here because you simply can't turn your back on sin. If there's sin here and I turn my back and I don't walk away, I'm still too close to sin. How many of you told your children at some point in time when they were in kindergarten, first, second, third grade, just walk away? Right? Because if you don't walk away, stupid is going to happen. Just walk away. That's the same thing here. The closer proximity you have to sin, bad things happen. So when you turn away from sin, turn around and walk away from it and move your face and your body toward God. It's literally a physical and a spiritual picture of that movement. Now this is the first recorded revival in the Bible. This is the fourth time God has spoken to Jacob directly, and God commands Jacob, look, you made a vow to me 30 years before that this is what you were going to do. Now fulfill it. God has a very long memory. He never forgets anything. Some of us have opened our mouth and made promises to God about what we were going to do if he would do X, Y, Z for us. If he would bless us, I promise I will do blah, blah, blah. God remembers those promises, and some of us have not fulfilled those promises. You may need to go back to Bethel and have a face-to-face -face with God about what you promised him to do. Jacob needs to go back to Bethel and rededicate his life to God. Rob's going to show you a map of a number of cities that are in the central hill country here of, of uh, Israel. Bethel's only about 20 miles south of Shechem. But it is a thousand feet higher in elevation. So when they say go up to Shechem or go up to Jerusalem, it's because it's higher in elevation. The cities are all on a ridge. There's a central ridge that runs right through the north and south through central Israel. And if you look at this map, it's almost a straight line from Shechem to Bethel to Hebron where Isaac is living. That's Jacob's dad. We're pretty sure that Jacob visited Isaac a number of times in the 10 years he was in Shechem, but he's never gone back to Bethel, even though it was right on the way. And you're going, dude, you made a promise to God that you were going to pay this vow. God told you to go back, and you've been bypassing the place of promise for 10 years. You never dropped off to keep your promise before God. What's going on? Well, it's probably not hard to see why. Jacob has not been following God. He's been only partially obeying God. His family still has idols, lots of them, in their possession. And he's still living in Shechem where God told him not to be. 
So Jacob is a divided man. He's caught between Shechem, where he's making a lot of money with the Canaanites, and Bethel, where he's supposed to be with God. And he's trying to serve two masters, and it's not working. The truth of it is, we all need to meet with God on a regular basis. Here's a principle I probably should have put on screen, but write it down. There is not one thing in your life that will not be improved by regularly meeting with God. There is not one thing in your life that will not be improved by regularly meeting with God. Whatever it is, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's a problem. It could be, man, this is really going well. It will go better with Jesus. Was there an ad at one point in time, things go better with Coke? Okay, well, let me tell you, without Jesus, it doesn't go at all. Okay? Many times, we don't want to meet with God. Because we're hanging on to sin that we don't want to give up. And we know when we get close to God, He's going to shine the spotlight on it. And He's going to bring conviction. And we know that we can't come into His presence and hang on to our sin. We've got to be willing to let it go. This was Jacob. He was doing materially extremely wealthy, but his family was becoming infected with the sin of the Canaanites' cultures. But after the disasters of chapter 34, rape, rampage, murder, and everything else, he's ready now, his hearing aid's working, and he's really ready to rededicate his life to God. But Jacob knows that he and his family have to prepare to meet God. You know, you just don't waltz into God's company and say, Hey, here I am. Come off your throne. Come down and talk to me. No, this family has assimilated the spiritual practices and the idolatry of the surrounding Canaanite culture. As a matter of fact, the truth is, Jacob's family were really practicing polytheists. They claimed allegiance to the one true God, but you're going to find out they had lots of other idols and lots of other false gods as well. They actually had quite a collection of idols and and golden amulets and things like that. They had the teraphim that Rachel had stolen from her father Laban 10 years early. When they looted the city of Shechem, they undoubtedly collected a whole other collection of, uh, of uh, idols and false gods, etc., etc. And up until now, for the last decade, Jacob has been pretty tolerant. Yeah, you want, you know, God's fine, idols are fine, Yahweh's fine, teraphim's fine. You know, I'm tolerant. Sounds like our culture, right? We're open-minded. Just remember, an open mind, anything can fall into it, and anything can fall out of it. And when you listen to some people talk today, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of falling in and falling out. But now, interestingly enough, Jacob finally assumes spiritual leadership. And he commands his family, put away these idols, because he understands you cannot come to worship God and hang on to your idols at the same time any more than you can bring an old girlfriend or boyfriend on your honeymoon with your new spouse. <laughs> it ain't going to work. For those of you that are thinking it might, it won't work. All right? Loyalty to the guy. I know you're smiling and you're going, boy, that could be really painful. Yes, it could. You could have a bread knife all the way in your left kidney before you woke up in the morning. However, loyalty to the God of the Bible is exclusive, just like marriage. Throughout Scripture, God uses marriage as a metaphor for His relationship with His people. 
So Jacob takes all the family idols and buries them under a very prominent oak tree. It says the oak, must have been a huge oak tree, near Shechem. And they all turn around and walk away and leave them behind in Shechem as they head toward Bethel. And that's what repentance really is. Walking away from sin and walking toward God. Now Jacob not only gets rid of the idols, he says... Purify yourselves and change your garments. Now, if you lived in that era and that geography, bathing and laundry were infrequent. There wasn't a lot of rainfall, and water was scarce, and people didn't possess closets full of clothes. They generally had one pair of clothes you wore. Maybe if you're wealthy, you had more than one. But even more importantly, in the Bible, when it says bathing and changing clothes, it's spiritually symbolic. When you read the Pentateuch, and you look at the first five books of the Bible, Moses always commands people, when you come to God, bathe and change your garments. So it's an external cleaning up on the outside that's a symbol of cleansing on the inside. So when you bathe and change your garments on the outside, put on clean clothes and bathe your body, it's a picture of I'm cleaning, I'm, I'm coming to God and I want to come to him in a pure state, in a repentant state. In a, in, a, in a confession state so that God can wash my heart and wash my conscience. So they're getting ready to meet God, and they want to be pure when they meet God. So God had commanded Jacob, here's what I want you to do, and I want you to come and build an altar and worship God there. Stay with me on this. I'm going to walk you through what an altar is and what a sacrifice is. An altar is a place where sacrifices are made to God. A sacrifice means to give up something you value in exchange for something you value more. A sacrifice is to give up or surrender something you value in exchange for something you value more. When you make a sacrifice to God, you're saying you value God more than what you are giving up. And we do that all the time, right? In, in our families, you know, when, when we're engaged, we, we go, we buy uh, generally an engagement ring, and it's costly. It is expensive, and we sacrifice in order to buy that engagement ring. Why do we do that? Because we value the relationship with the spouse we're going to hopefully marry more than the money for the diamond, right? So it, it says, I'm willing to sacrifice something I value in exchange for something I value more. If you value your children, you get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and change their diaper. Yes, you value sleep, but you value the well-being of your child more than you value sleep. So you crawl out of bed and feed them and change them, etc., etc. So the more costly the sacrifice, the more you value God. Well, the most precious thing you possess without exception is life. Life is the most precious thing we possess. So sacrificing a life was the most meaningful of all. And in the Old Testament, animal and food sacrifices were part of the covenant relationship between God and his people. Now, some pagan societies in that era and throughout history have prescribed human sacrifice to propitiate or appease the, the gods, you know, feeding the gods with human sacrifice, if you will. Scripture condemns all human sacrifice irrevocably except for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son. So in the Bible, 
The altar was the place where you just didn't make a sacrifice. The altar was the place where the divine world and the human world met. It's where they intersected. The altar was the place where God and humanity had a relationship. And the tabernacle was called the tent of meeting, right? You met with God there, and that sacrifice facilitated that meeting. So sacrifices were the medium of exchange between God and people. And God's telling Jacob, I want you to go to Bethel, make an altar, and make a sacrifice. And you say, well, what's the big deal about sacrifices? Well, sacrifices are necessary because the God of the Bible is what? Perfectly holy, and people are totally sinful. And God's standard is perfect righteousness, and every human being does what? Falls short of that standard, right? We call that, the Bible calls that falling short sin. And our sin, human sin, violates God's holiness, and it breaks our relationship with Him. It separates us from God. And our sin that separates us from God has to be dealt with if we're going to have a relationship with God. The Bible says our sin problem is so serious that there is no forgiveness for our sin without the shedding of blood. So in the Old Testament, as a representative of what was to come, God commanded an animal sacrifice to be practiced because human sin was covered when an innocent animal died in the place of the guilty human. So this was substitutionary sacrifice, the innocent dying in place of the guilty. The innocent victim, in this case an animal, paid the penalty for the sin of the one offering the sacrifice. And the innocent victim on the altar was the one who experienced God's judgment while the guilty person making the sacrifice received God's forgiveness and a right relationship with God. However, you and I know that animal sacrifice can never forgive sin. Because it's not a perfect sacrifice. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, could be an acceptable sacrifice for human sin because only Jesus was sinless. So the ultimate altar is what? The cross of Jesus Christ at Calvary. Where the perfect sacrifice was made on our behalf from God on our behalf to reconcile us with God. And this is why we sing amazing grace that God, amazing love, how can it be that God would die for us? In every other world religion, there is always sacrifices, but it's never the God who dies on behalf of the people. Never. It's always the people have to appease the God with human sacrifice or grain sacrifice or giving stuff up. It's always what humans do. Only Christianity does God offer himself to pay the penalty for human sin. That is amazing love. And that's why we love him, because he first loved us. And that's why John said, John the Baptist, when we saw Jesus coming, he said what? Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. So Jacob's getting ready to go back to Bethel, meet with God, build an altar, make a sacrifice, and rededicate himself to being loyal to God alone. And this means getting rid of everything that would come between him and God. When you and I come to God, you can't bring anything with you. You can only bring 
you. Not part of you. Not some of you. All of you. How much blood did Jesus shed to pay for your sin? All. He laid down his very life. So for the Christian, we don't put stuff on the altar. You know what God wants on the altar? Us. Us. Romans 12.1, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here's the reality. Most of us would rather sacrifice anything except us. See, when we get on the altar, we're saying, God, you're in charge and I'm not. And boy, our human pride, we do, you know, I'm large and in, no, we're not large and in charge. If you, how many of you were at the 8 o'clock service? All right, you get it. If you haven't been 11 o'clock, you must go. The first beatitude Pastor Roger preaches about. Poor in spirit. God doesn't need or want our stuff. God wants us. All of us. And you say, well, why would God want me? Well, number one, he loves you. But number two, he wants to give you all of him. And the only way you can have all of him is when he has all of you. See, anything we value more than God is an idol. If you want a definition of an idol, that's it. Anything you value more than God is an idol. And it will block your relationship with God. You know, most people today, we don't worship these little stone figurines of rock or metal, although some people do. For people in the West, especially developed countries, our idols can be career success, could be recognition by others. You know, I got to be the center. I got to be in the camera. It could be personal fulfillment. For many Americans, their idol, quite frankly, is just leisure. It's just comfort. I only want to do what I only want to do. When I want to do it. Nobody going to tell me what to do. I'm going to run my life. Well, that's an idol. You're the idol now. So an idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. And the solution for our idolatry today is the same as it was for Jacob. Agree with God about your sin. That's called confession. Ask for his forgiveness. And then turn away from that sin and walk toward God. Verse 5. So they're leaving Shechem, verse 5. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram, that's Haran, and he blessed him. Here's the principle. When we come back to God, he meets us right where we left him. When we come back to God, he meets us right where we left him. Because God never leaves you. Ever. So God supernaturally protected Jacob on the way from Shechem down to Haran. It's about a 20-mile Hike, but he's got thousands of herds and flocks. It's a big deal. They're moving the whole thing there. 
And Jacob is scared that these Canaanites are going to take retribution on him because he's killed their relatives. But it says God supernaturally protected him by putting a great fear in the hearts of all these Canaanites who wanted revenge, so they let him alone. So Jacob goes to Bethel. He obeys God. He builds an altar and calls the place El Bethel, which means the strong God of the house of God. Bet in Hebrew is house, and El is God. Bethel, Bethel, house of God. Now what you may not realize is verse 7 and verse 9 are separated by three decades. There's 30 years between verse 7 and verse 9. Verse 7 is the first time he went to Bethel. Verse 9 is the second time he goes to Bethel. So the first time he's in Bethel in verse 7, he's just fleeing from his brother, and he's 77 years old, and he's there all by himself. Now, 30 years later, he's 107 years old, and he's the head of a huge family, four wives, 11 kids, loads and loads of servants. He's a very wealthy man. Question. How many of you have ever been stood up on a date? I don't necessarily mean a romantic date. It could be a lunch date. It could be, how many of you have ever been stood up? Right? They didn't show up, and they didn't call either. How do you feel? I maybe in some cases you're going, well, I didn't want to talk to him anyway. <laughs> Jacob's 97 years old. He leaves Laban and God says, go to Bethel. I've got a date with you there. You and I are going to have a meeting. Jacob stood God up for 10 years. He's 10 years late for this date because he's been flirting with the world, spiritually speaking. And in essence... Jacob has wasted a decade, spiritually speaking, because it was completely non-productive from God's perspective. This used to really give me heartburn, because I'm going, Lord, you mean if I wasted that 10 years, because I got a lot of waste in my history. I don't know about you, but I've, I'm above average stupid and above average stubborn. That's just, that's just human nature. But I take great comfort in that God's grace supersedes my stupid, which means God restores the years which the locust has eaten. That's in Joel. Some of us have a lot of history and go, Lord, I haven't been terribly productive. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of years I wasn't productive at all. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of years I was at war with you, and I can identify with that. My comfort is that God says, your sin does not limit my capacity to use you, and God can achieve more in six months of your committed to him that you can achieve in a lifetime. So I realize some of us look at Jacob and go, 10 years wasted, man, that's really, it is really heavy. But God can restore that. Unfortunately, Jacob, his disobedience has created a lot of unnecessary suffering for his family. His daughter gets assaulted. His sons become murderers. All of this was unnecessary because Jacob should have been at Bethel and he was messing around in Shechem. However, just because Jacob had left God doesn't mean God left Jacob. And I know what that's like, and some of you know what that's like. Just because you walk away from God does not mean God's walked away from you. He never leaves. He never moves. And when you come back, he's right there waiting for you. So when God speaks to Jacob now, 10 years after the fact, he doesn't reject him. He doesn't even critique him. He doesn't remonstrate with him. He doesn't rebuke him. He just repeats the same promises he made to him 30 years 
on the exact same spot. Let's go to verse 10. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken to him Bethel. Here's the principle. Because God is almighty, we are to live according to his word, not according to the standards of the world. Because God is almighty, we are to live according to his word, not according to the standards of the world. Now, this is the fifth time God has spoken to Jacob directly. And when God speaks to Jacob this time, he doesn't give me a new revelation at all. He simply repeats exactly what he told him 30 years before, because God's promises never change. But Jacob had not been living in light of what I promised to him. God says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to protect you, and you are to come back here and meet with me. And of course, Jacob had disobeyed that and walked away from God. So when Jacob comes back, God repeats, Jacob, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And you say, I thought he told him that 10 years ago when they had a wrestling match by the Brook Jabbok. And he did. Here's the problem. Jacob has not been acting like Israel. He's been acting like Jacob for 10 years. Even though God told him 10 years ago, your name is not Jacob, it's Israel. So when God repeats this, you're going, well, God doesn't repeat something because he forgot. He repeats it because we didn't get it the first time. He's emphasizing it. So when God tells Jacob, your name is not Jacob, it's Israel, he says, stop acting like a Jacob. And you go, well, what does that mean? In Scripture, your name reflects your character. And Jacob came out of the womb grabbing his brother's heel, trying to be first, pulling back in so I can get out first, right? So they called him heel catcher. It means supplanter, liar, deceiver. And God says, Jacob, your name is Israel. Stop acting like a Jacob who steals and deceives, who trusts in his own cleverness, who tolerates sin, who flirts with the world, who's not committed to me. Stop behaving like a Jacob. You name is Israel. Start behaving like a prince who prevails with God and man. Start acting like the spiritual leader that I called you to be of your family. And it's true for us today. You and I have been saved from sin in order to have a love relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we need to stop acting like we did before we met Jesus and start acting like the person God called us to be after he saved us. Which means stop living like the world around you. You know, today's culture, it's really sad. But many, 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 many people who call themselves Christians, I'm not judging their heart, when you look at their behavior, there's not a dime's worth of difference between how they live and how the world lives. They watch the same entertainment, they think the same way, they act the same way, they talk the same way, and you're saying, 
How can you have God Almighty living in you and it not make a difference? Well, either they're disobedient or God doesn't live inside them, one of the two. We should expect unsaved people to be had, behave badly. Do you know unsaved people? Do they behave badly? Of course they do, right? They're lost. They're in spiritual bondage. Don't expect the unsaved to behave well. They're lost. Satan's got them under his thumb. But you and I as Christians have been given supernatural power to overcome sin because we have the Holy Spirit in us. We should be behaving differently. We need to start behaving like God's children because that's who we are. Because we don't want to give our Heavenly Father a bad name because of our bad behavior. And, you know, has your kid ever embarrassed you? <laughs> ever? You know, you're in a restaurant or you're worse, you're on an airplane, right? And they're just losing it and you can't do anything and you're out of duct tape and cork so you can't stop them from, you know, doing all this stuff. You're going, man, they're going to think I'm a really rotten parent, you know? Now, when they're newborns, everybody gives you a break. But when they're eight or even worse, 15, then you go, man, you're making me look bad. Well, behave in such a way that your heavenly father is honored. God said to Jacob, I called you Israel. I redeemed you. I saved you. Now start behaving like it. Ephesians 4.1, Paul writes, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You are God's children. Behave like it. So God says, my name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. <laughs> See, when God gives us commands and he makes promises to us, he doesn't do it based on who we are. God's never going to make you a promise based on how good you are or how bad you are. He makes promises and he gives us commands based on who he is. When God identifies himself as God Almighty, he's saying, my promises will surely come to pass because there's nobody stronger than me who can thwart them. Jacob, because I am God Almighty, you be fruitful and multiply. And I will give you this land and I want you to behave like that. So it says when God finished speaking to him, he ascended into heaven. And my little brain goes, I wonder if he went up the same ladder that Jacob had seen 30 years before. Could be. But I mean, he literally sees God go up into heaven, ascending. This is the pre-incarnate Christ, second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty dramatic. And of course, Jacob responds by worshiping. He builds an altar, sacrifices, etc. And on the outside, of course, that means sacrificing, setting up a pillar, etc. On the inside, it means a commitment a rededication to worship and serve God and God alone. So after this promise comes about, and God has made Jacob these magnificent promises, said, I will be with you. I am God Almighty, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to protect you. You would expect what? You would expect Jacob's life to run like a Swiss watch. You would say, man, from here on out, it's got to be smooth. I mean, God Almighty has made all these promises to him. Not really. Over the next few years, we get four major heartbreaks listed in Jacob's life. And by the way, that doesn't even get into Joseph and all the grief that Jacob went through with his sons and Joseph, which we're going to get to, Lord willing, next week. 
His mother's nurse, who raised him from childhood, dies. His favorite wife dies in childbirth. His oldest son has sex with one of his wives in an attempt to overthrow Jacob as leader of his family. And finally, Jacob gets to bury his aged blind father. This is after the promises of God. Here's the principle. God's people are not immune from suffering in a sinful world. God sustains us through the troubles of life, but he does not always save us from the troubles of life. God's people are not immune from suffering in a sinful world. God sustains us through the troubles of life, but he does not always save us from them. I said not always. Sometimes he does save us from the troubles of life. Matter of fact, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be amazed at how much trouble he saved us from, and we didn't even know it. But he doesn't always save us from the troubles of life. But he will sustain us through them. Verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried below Bethel under the yoke. It was named Alan Bakuth. Deborah had come with Rebekah from Mesopotamia. So Isaac and Rebekah get married over a hundred years ago. This is a century ago. And this is Rebekah's nurse. She's older than Rebecca. If Rebecca was about 20 years old, this nurse is older than Rebecca at that point in time. And she came with Rebecca to meet Isaac 100 years ago. And she undoubtedly had known Jacob since he was a child. She probably was his nurse and raised him. So Jacob has known this woman for 107 years because he's 107 years old. She didn't travel with Jacob when he first left home because Jacob went to Haran by himself. But she must have come back and joined Jacob's household during one of the trips that Jacob made to visit dad Isaac down in Shechem. Because in this 10-year period, Jacob was traveling back and forth, probably from Shechem to Hebron to visit his dad. And when Rebekah died, Deborah, her nurse, probably joined Jacob's household. Because remember, Isaac has been blind now for decades. He was blinded about 130 and he's pushing 168 right now. So Deborah probably joined Jacob's household during that period of time. She was so missed and important that they listed her by name in Scripture. And it says she was buried under a landmark oak tree that they named Alan Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. When you've had a hundred year relationship with someone, it's hard to say goodbye. And that's probably the hardest thing when we go to memorial services especially as we age, some of these folks that are in heaven now, we've known for decades and decades and decades. And we know they're much better off, but we're the one who have to live with a heartbreak until we see them again. Verse 16, Then they journeyed from Bethel, so Jacob's been obedient, built the altar, they're leaving Bethel, and when they were still some distance to go to Ephrath, or Bethlehem, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you will have another son. But it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Rob's going to show you a map of how these cities lined up. It's about 35 miles or thereabouts from Bethel to Hebron. Bethel is where Jacob built the altar. 
Hebron is where Isaac is living still. And Jacob is traveling down to see Isaac because God told him to see his relatives. And they're en route. They're traveling from Bethel down to um, see Isaac at Hebron. And somewhere around Bethlehem, Rachel begins to give birth. And of course, that tells me, I wonder if this was a premature birth. Because generally you don't travel when someone's in labor. So they're traveling and she goes into labor on the way. And Rebecca, or Rachel, must have been an older mother at this point. She and Jacob have been married for more than 30 years at this point. So you kind of look and go, well, if she was 20 or even 15 when they got married, she's at least 45 and maybe 50. Not sure how old she was when they got married, but we know there's been a 30-year marriage. She had given birth to Joseph about 15 years before this. And as you recall, the name Joseph means to add. She is trusting that God will give her another son. And of course, this is that other son. And this says this was severe labor. Ultimately cost her life, but she lived long enough to name her son Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. And Jacob says, I don't want my son to carry that name to grammar school. I mean, in kindergarten, it's going to be pretty tough. What's your name? Son of my sorrow. That's pretty tough for a kid to carry. And of course, I tell people now when I read the birth announcements, you really named your kid that? You want your child to carry that? I mean, some parents name their children. They don't think about what that's, what that's going to do. Well, Jacob says, I don't want my kid to be son of my sorrow for the next hundred years. You know, So he renames him Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. That's a place of honor. Benjamin's the only son who's actually born in the land of Canaan. And Benjamin's the only son that Jacob actually named. Every other son's named by the mother. Which is interesting. Very interesting. I think Jacob was pretty passive dad until now. So he buries his favorite wife about a mile, a mile outside of Bethlehem, sets up a pillar, and apparently this was so prominent that when Moses wrote this 400 years later, that pillar was still there. And if you go to Israel today, you will see Rachel's tomb outside Bethlehem. Verse 21. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent Beyond the tower of Eder, it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now this tower of Eder is a watchtower that they put up in the, the shepherds put up to keep an eye on the flock. So if you're in a watchtower, you can see the flock from a great distance and protect them from thieves and predators. So Israel's living in that area and his oldest son, Reuben, initiates a sexual relationship with Rachel's maid. Remember, Laban had given Rachel and Leah two wives, but he'd also given their maids to Jacob as concubines, sort of a, a surrogate secondary wife. And Reuben begins a sexual relationship with this woman. It's not primarily a sexual relationship. Bill High is probably 20 years older than Reuben. Sounds like a consensual relationship, but in reality, this was a political deal. So it, it, in political terms, this was a palace coup. Because in that era, one of the ways a usurper attempted to overthrow an existing ruler was to take possession of the ruler's harem. Having sex with the ruler's harem was proof positive that you had control over the kingdom. It also made reconciliation, of course, between the king and the rebel uh, impossible. Remember David, son, Absalom. David's revolting, gets a revolt. Absalom's going to revolt against his son, I mean against his father David. And he gets counsel from Ahithophel that says, have sex with David's concubines on a tent on the palace roof. 
beyond comprehension. But it, number one, it will tell everybody that you're in charge. Obviously, you don't have sex with your father's wives if you're not in charge. And number two, it will make sure that everybody knows there ain't no going back because there's no reconciliation after that event. So Reuben's attempt here was not just to have sex with David's concubine. It was trying to overthrow Jacob's leadership of the family. Reuben said, I'm going to take control of this family because dad is stupid. Dad's not in control. Dad is not doing what I want him to do. Now, he was the firstborn. What's utterly sad, Jacob had stolen his older brother's blessing and rebelled against his father's authority. And Reuben does exactly the same thing to his father. And you've all heard the phrase, what goes around comes around. What you sow, you reap. And some of us should be praying for crop failure. Now, fortunately, the grace of God covers the sinful seeds that we sowed, but we're forgiven, but we still have to live with the consequences. Israel, Jacob, doesn't take any action against Reuben. Apparently, it was a one-time deal. But in Genesis 49, when Jacob's on his deathbed, he's blessing his 12 sons, Genesis 49, he calls out Reuben for his sin publicly and takes the birthright away from him. Because the oldest son had the right of the birthright to be the leader of the family clan, the oldest son. And he said, that's gone. It's going to Judah. So Judah winds up with a leadership of the nation of Israel, not Reuben. Not one leader in the entire Israel history came out of the tribe of Reuben. Verse 27. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, at Kiriath Araba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. An old man of ripe age and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. 43 years before this, Jacob had deceived his father with his mother's help, as mother's instigation. And they were able to do it because Isaac was blind at 137 years old. He lived another 43 years to 180, and he's been blind for the last 43 years. It ain't easy getting old. It ain't for sissies, right? Just saying. So lest you think that, you know, going to the ortho is tough or having cataract surgery, try dentistry without anesthetic. They didn't have any of that back in the day. You lived with the disabilities of age. And I'm thinking, if you're blind in that era and your whole job was to watch sheep, you're in trouble. Fortunately, he was a very wealthy man. He could hire everybody to do it. But living with disabilities is part of living on a fallen planet, unfortunately. And we sometimes forget that. He's an old man of ripe age, but sometimes old age is a tough burden to bear, especially at 180. So Isaac has been visited by Jacob multiple times, but now Jacob comes to live with dad. And it probably occurred about 12 years before Isaac's death, so Isaac's about 168 years old when Jacob moves to Hebron. He lives with him for about 12 years. Matter of fact, we'll find out the next couple of weeks. Isaac is still alive 
when his grandson Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. That's pretty tough for grandpa. Your grandson gets sold into slavery by his brothers. Now, he doesn't know that. He thinks he's been killed. And Jacob believes it as well. So when you look at Jacob's life in this chapter, you realize the disasters of chapter 34 is what set Jacob up to listen to God, to renew his relationship in chapter 35, which is really what this is about. But having a right relationship with God does not mean that you will not struggle with living in a sinful, broken world. And Jacob is so much like us. When I look at Jacob, it pains me, but I say, I am so Jacob. I mean, I can resemble that. I behave like him. Sometimes I'm walking with the Lord very closely. Sometimes I'm neglectful of God. Sometimes I'm distracted by the world. Sometimes I partially obey God and not completely obey God. And I suffer the strokes and the stripes, and you all do too. However, our hope is not in that. Our hope is in El Shaddai, God Almighty, who never changes. And he is faithful, and he will keep every one of the promises he made to us. And that should give us hope in the week going forward. Let's summarize, and then I'll ask Tom to come up and lead us in our prayer and praises. Number one, returning to God requires repentance. We must walk away from sin and walk back to God. Number two, when we come back to God, He will meet us right where we left Him, because God does not move, right? Number three, because God is almighty, we are to live according to His word, not according to the standards of the world. And we are always influenced by the world. Do this, do this, do this. God is almighty. He is the standard. His character is the standard of our behavior, not what the world says, which is deceived by the enemy. And lastly, God's people are not immune from suffering. When you listen to our prayer requests that come through here, you understand that you are not alone. Satan will always try and persuade you. Only you have these troubles. And when you come to class and you listen to prayer requests, you go, whoa, I am not the only one who's going through the valley of the shadow, which is comforting. It also says that you have work to do to pray for each other. God's people are not immune from suffering in a sinful world. God sustains us through the troubles of life, but he does not always save us from them. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Uh, our prayer, as always, is that you will take the knowledge that God has given you and obey it. And I do love you. And now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.